appreciate everyone joining here today. Um, happy to do uh, some like quick intros to start off. And excuse me, I mean, I'm happy to go uh, real quick. And then of course, uh, Emily Calkins, Eric Lamb, and uh, Caitlin Bullet. Morlachek. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay. Um, but Rohit Mulrani, uh, currently co-founder at Office Hours, used to be with Battery Ventures for a couple of years and then Source Scrub thereafter. And I think honestly, um, that's probably where we like really interacted um, the most. Um, Source Scrub, private company database, oriented around really helping out growth equity firms find businesses as a whole. And really my job ended up being like very oriented around like networking and meeting cool people in the industry. And then of course, I uh, interacted with uh, yourselves. So if you wouldn't mind uh, introducing yourself to the audience here, maybe we start with Emily. Cool. Hey guys, uh, I'm Emily. I'm a vice president at Spectrum Equity now. I um, was a creative writing major in undergrad. So whoever the liberal arts kids on this panel, uh, fear not, you two can make it. Um, I went to, went to Williams, worked for two years at Credit Suisse in what was then called the private placements team. Doesn't exist anymore, I don't think, but it was focused on pre-IPO tech capital raises. So that's sort of where I caught the software bug. Uh, moved out to San Francisco in 2016, joined a firm called Mainsail Partners and was there for three years, two as an associate, one as a senior associate before um, taking six months off living in my car and visiting every national park in the US, which I highly recommend. And then um, going to business school at Stanford for the last two years. Uh, I joined Spectrum in September and I'm happy to talk a little bit about like, how I made that choice or how I broke into growth, uh, but really excited to be here today. Good to meet you guys. Awesome, happy to go next. Um, Caitlin Vorlicek, I'm a vice president at Sageview Capital. I've been with Sageview since January of 2021. So um, you're lucky COVID hire. Um, and I started my career in investment banking. Um, I was an economics major at Colby, so also a liberal arts um, grad and you know, cut my teeth in the technical world um, at Harris Williams doing cell side M&A for the software team in Boston. Um, and then I recruited for, um, for growth equity and, and landed at Summit Partners and spent three years there sourcing and executing uh, for the, the smaller growth equity fund there. Um, ended up sourcing an investment in a company called Veriship at the time. It's now rebranded to Sifted, but I sort of wondered if I wanted to be on more of the operating side versus the investing side. And so um, spent a little over a year there leading partnerships and corporate development. Um, moved to Kansas City for uh, for a hot second and then moved back to Boston when COVID hit. Um, ultimately decided I wanted to get back into the investing world, got a little too close to the sun at Veriship. Um, and so I landed at Sageview, um, can also talk a little bit more about how I got here. But um, the long story short is uh, a longtime mentor of mine uh, from Colby was at Sageview. And so the value of networking is uh, has has treated me well. Um, would encourage it for all of you as well. Everyone, um, I'm Eric Lim. I'm founder and general partner at Potluck Ventures, which I just started earlier this year. Uh, we're a venture growth fund focused on investing in AAPI founded businesses or founders that have Asian descent. Uh, so we're impact driven as well as financially driven. Uh, my background started in growth equity, so I actually uh, graduated from Johns Hopkins and then went trade. So a little bit more untraditional previously, but uh, it's more and more common now uh, joining straight from, from uh, undergrad to uh, growth equity. So I was fortunate to start my career at JMI, where I spent two years as an analyst. Then I joined um, AXA Venture Partners, which is a 
VC backed by Axa, the insurance company. Um, I was the first associate in the US there for uh, about two and a half years. And then I was most recently at Fifth Wall. So I joined them at the launch of Fund Two and then just left um, uh, in January. So I helped grow them to about $3 billion. So uh, multiple different firms. So happy to talk about that too and uh, experiences across them, similar, similar and differences across uh, different firms. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. No, I mean, appreciate everyone coming out. Um, of course, uh, participants and uh, our panelists included. Um, what I would say is I think uh, it's really interesting, of course, kind of like the different experiences that we bring to the table here um, and with office hours, right? Main focus ends up being, of course, like as analysts and associates and honestly, incoming analysts even think about what they want to get into long term. A lot of individuals will think generally like, OK, like banking to private equity. Now, kind of that like two plus two, maybe business school comes thereafter, but generally ends up being like pretty darn oriented around like a two plus two program. Now, banking to private equity generally ends up being kind of like a traditional path. I'd be curious to ask a little bit more and get your insight into why growth equity and why that was interesting to you. And then maybe we keep it within that flow, Emily, Caitlin, and then Eric. Cool. Um, so for context, I did not do any on-cycle recruiting when I was at Credit Suisse. Um, I was a liberal arts kid, as I mentioned, and I joined Credit Suisse and it felt like everyone had gone to Wharton and was like doodling during our training seminar. And I was like, what is a PL emergency? Like I had so much to learn. And so I didn't, I, I didn't feel prepared. And I also didn't feel the amount of conviction I would have needed to say, hey, six months into my current job, I'm going to commit to something a year and a half down, down the pike. Um, so for me, I had an, a great experience working with a gov tech business when I was in banking, and that's kind of where I caught the bug. And I thought to myself, how could I go think about companies like this all day long? Um, and then bootstrapped it a little bit into growth equity. So like the first thing I would say is um, cold emails are a beautiful thing. Like they're a big part of your job if you end up working in growth equity. So don't wait for a headhunter or recruiter to call you. Like the list of firms in growth equity that's out here crushing it is um, short and easily Googleable. Like the initiative is awesome. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. But why growth for me uh, was a couple of things. First, um, sourcing, I think it's a, a bad rap as like a, a tough slog of a job. In my view, a role, a sourcing role is basically a fund paying you to think critically multiple times a day about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies, which is the best way to develop like the IP of your brain as an investor. Um, so as opposed to working on a couple of giant buyouts a year, by the way, this is my opinion, not fact. Um, you get to call in a given day, like a manu manufacturing supply chain software company, a company that does like business operations for pool skimmers to figure out which pools to go clean at which times. And a company that does like uh, treasury management software. How cool is that? And how many different things do you think about in a given day? And how transferable is the skill of, I have 20 minutes with any growing company on earth. What seven questions would I ask this guy if I could get 20 minutes with him? Um, so first, I just think sourcing is the best way to learn, hands down, bar none. And second, um, I really liked the challenge, like the idea of this being a competitive market and a company I loved this is probably actually factually true that every company I loved, Eric, when he was at JMI and Caitlin, when she was at Summit, was also sending emails to that same company. And Rohit was telling all of us what conferences that guy was going to be at. So like it's a level playing field. And I actually loved the this is not an analytical challenge, but I loved the personal challenge of like, how will you write the best email? How will you do the best prep work? How will you like differentiate your firm? So for me, um, 
sourcing as a way to build your IP as an investor and sourcing as like a fun personal challenge were super, super motivating on the sort of continuum of, of types of funds I looked at and wanted to interview with. Yeah, I would, I mean, I would just reiterate everything Emily just said about the sourcing role. It's, um, it's all very accurate. I don't think I was necessarily thinking that way at the time, though, in hindsight, like, it is truly the coolest job you're getting paid to just go, you know, think about what you want to talk to that day. Um, for me, I, I did participate in sort of on-cycle recruiting, which at the time was about, you know, the timelines have been jumping back and forth over the years. At the time, it was about a year, it was like six months into the banking job, year and a half before you'd actually need to be hired. And, you know, I just kind of felt like finance always recruited so early. I kind of just kept saying, well, I don't not want to do this. So let me go explore and figure out what that means. And so I'd started talking to people leaned heavily on my Colby network, um, which is how I ultimately met my, my sort of mentor here at Sageview that recruited me. Um, and I thought, you know, there's sort of three different pieces of private company investing I could get involved in. There's venture capital, there's growth equity, and there's buyout private equity. And for me, you know, both en ends of that spectrum were not great fits for various reasons. I think if you want to do venture capital, you probably don't actually want to be in banking right now. Um, but I also didn't like the idea of just like, we're going to go invest in tons and tons of companies and only a few are going to really make the returns for our portfolio. I kind of felt like I didn't even have the emotional capacity for that, like to, to have a bunch of my portfolio companies not make it. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I think there's, you can make a case for, for financial engineering being really intellectually stimulating. But for me, what got me going was like, we're going to make our returns through growth of the businesses that we back. We're not going to do it through sort of financial engineering. Um, and so I think just think about kind of like what's, which strategy sort of resonates with you. And so for me, that was growth equity. Um, so that was a piece of it. And then I'd say the other piece was the sourcing role. Um, and when I thought about that, it was, you know, I was like very, very scared of the sourcing role. You know, I, I was even nervous to pick up the phone when my boss was calling me when I first, you know, got, got on the desk at Harris Williams. And so I was, a, you know, I, I had a hard time speaking up, was really nervous, you know, felt over my skis. And I thought, you know, I want I really want to get to the point where I feel comfortable picking up the phone and calling um, anyone and, and having a, and like having that confidence and, um, and I thought sourcing was a really great way to sort of rip that bandaid off. Um, and so, um, so I knew it would be a challenge. I had a mentor also tell me, you know, when I did get the job at Summit, and of course they're like, you have to decide by tomorrow. And you're like, I don't need to be there for a year and a half. So I don't know why that's the case, but, <laughs> um, you know, I was like, shoot, do I take this offer? And, um, you know, I was starting to talk to other firms like JMI included, um, and, um, one of the same mentor who I work for now at Sageview kind of said, just if you're worried about the sourcing, you know, role, don't be like, you're not going to fall flat on your face. It's not in your track record. Like, and I know that because I I've talked to your boss and like, I've seen, like, I know what you've done. And, you know, I kind of thought like, actually it kind of is in my track record to fall on my face, but that hasn't stopped me from being successful. And so, um, so I think I'm just going to go take the leap and do that because I want to develop the skill enough. And, um, and I know it's going to be hard, but, but I want it bad enough that I'm just going to go do it. And then I think kind of when you do land in the job, I realize a lot of the things that Emily kind of highlighted about just how cool the role really is when you take that step back and think about what you're doing every day. Yeah, I, I echo everything you both just said. Um, 
I think for me personally, like uh, my my journey was actually was a later transition into finance. So I was pre-med, I was business like um, studying business and psychology um, uh, as well as pre-med during, during my time at Hopkins. So I kind of switched during say junior, senior year. And when I thought about like banking, private equity, venture capital consulting, which is probably, you know, a year or two before where you guys are now, um, I was just trying to think about like, what's kind of my strengths and interests and personality and, um, you know, private equity buyout. I talked to people there and it just didn't seem like something I would be super, super driven, like every day, just in the models or like going deep in diligence with one company for a whole year and then maybe doing it, maybe not, or losing on price. Right. Um, and it's like bank deal. So you don't really get to build that connection and win off the, the personality kind of personal side of, of, uh, investing and then venture like early stage investing is in my view, really tough. Like, um, there's really awesome opportunities, but in my personal view, it's like, the best early stage investors have really big networks are or were entrepreneurs, you know, have a brand already. So I was like, Hey, you know, it's a really nice mix to be able to like, you know, cold email, cold call, build relationships, go to conferences, kind of earn your stripes there, build, build your reputation, and then also learn, you know, financial modeling and, and uh, building returns through, you know, growth and debt and all the various other instruments as well. So I just thought it was a really nice blend um, for my personality uh, there. And then I, I thought like, why not? Right. So if you're going to do that, you can go to venture if you wanted to later, or you go to, you know, pure buyout. So it's kind of this nice middle ground where you're not really shutting the doors, but you get really good experience in both kind of growth and, and buyouts. If, if you go to the right firms that do both. It's a really good point, Eric. You can kind of do anything from, actually, we are a great example of that. Caitlin went to a company and then to another fund. Eric went to a bunch of funds and is now building a fund. I escaped to business school and took two and a half years off conspicuously and I'm back in investing. But like you can, your your options are totally open, um, which, which I think is really, really cool and compelling. Yeah. I think honestly, that carries a lot of weight when it comes to, of course, like being able to not only like target one fund, start somewhere and then be able to move. But in all honesty, um, my experience was a little different, right? I mean, technically like started a battery, growth equity, calling on companies, ended up finding a specific deal where effectively like technically from what generally we end up saying like we don't really do bank deals, but I'm pretty sure that was banked. Um, it was an add-on of course that we use source script for, learn more about it. But then of course, kind of like going to the operating side, like sure you take a little bit of risk. And then of course, Caitlin would love to learn more on your end. Um, but you take a little bit of risk on the operating side. And to be fair, that ended up going like pretty darn successfully. Um, knock on wood, got lucky. Um, and then of course, I guess what I'm really getting at is there are individuals that go the operating side and then break back into investing as well, right? I mean, I feel like a lot of times we hear like banking to like large buyout, right? If you want to go to like a mega fund, like an Apollo, Blackstone, Carlisle, sure, it's kind of twofold. We do hear that from some mentees, but then on the other side, it's like honestly work-life balance. Um, if I tell you the truth, these past couple of days in New York, I've heard some analysts literally staying up, no joke, like 5 a.m. and then 7 a.m. I heard associates yesterday tell me 5.45, she went to sleep. She's 31, has a child, works at a bulge bracket. Wow. Literally like the child has a better sleep schedule than her. How does that even make sense? Um, ridiculous. So all I'm getting at is that like big buyout funds aren't necessarily like the way of like most. And sure, some people might be like, oh, but I want to make 450 grand as an associate at Apollo. Sure, but it's not like at the end of the day, like growth equity is paying like much, much less these days. You can really make some solid cash. You can get co-investability. Co you can get carry. 
um, potential. And I think that that makes up quite a bit, not to mention if you look at the hourly pay, um, probably higher actually compared to like a banking or like a big buyout shop that just kind of owns your life. Totally. Yeah. I also think there's like a, a question of autonomy. Like I sometimes say that, and this is really true at Spectrum where our associates have a ton of like leeway and decisive power over how they spend their time and what they call. You're basically as a great associate at a growth equity fund, you're basically an entrepreneur in residence and your business is your pipeline. And like if your pipeline isn't good, call other companies or get better breaking into the companies you know are good. But that's really neat. And that has like a lot of autonomy. Whereas Rohit, exactly the example you just gave is like you're waiting for an email. You're sort of like taking taking feedback from the top down. And that's how your life is structured. I think what's really cool about a cold call program is like it's bottoms up. Like you, you go decide if you want to go spend six weeks focusing on agriculture technology. And then like you decide if you want to do that by listening to podcasts at two in the morning or like calling companies in Estonia at whatever time people in Estonia are awake. Like that's totally up to you, uh, which is, which is kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think in general, just being on the buy side versus the sell side you have, or like being a banker, you have a little more autonomy over how you spend your time because you're choosing to kind of participate in that deal process. I think, especially at a growth equity firm, when you're sourcing and you're actually trying to come up, like find your own opportunities instead of participate in these, you know, pre-structured auctions. Um, that's even more true. I think at the end of the day, um, doing good deals is hard work, um, period. Um, and, and when you are working on a deal, you're still a little bit, um, you're still a little bit a slave to the deal process, maybe a little less so than in banking. Um, that said, I think there is a spectrum within, you know, the growth equity uh, universe of how, like just how, you know, much work-life balance you get. So I'd, I'd say, you know, again, like doing good deals is hard work. There's still a small spectrum, you know, of, um, no pun intended, Emily, um, of <laughs> um, firms that work, you know, have a culture of working a little harder or a little less, hard when it comes to the sourcing role. Yeah, really it, sourcing is kind of a mental challenge in that you uh, you could always, you could literally be sourcing 24 seven and be productive. Um, so you do have to sort of like balance your own life in that, you know, for me, that meant one night a week, I was just, you know, stopping work at seven and having dinner with a friend. And then I'd work late other nights and, and crunch conferences and source scrub made that actually a lot easier, <laughs> which was nice. Um, yeah. Eric, did you want to provide any insight on that? I think I think I agreed everything there. Them all made sense. Um, yeah, nothing nothing to add with on that. Okay. Um, honestly, not to jump right into it, Eric. You're a general partner at what age? Tell us more, um, please. <laughs> so I'm uh, yeah I'm 29. Um, I I spent the last uh, I started straight out of school for uh, investing. So I've spent the last six and a half seven years in investing, and um, I think a really good point. Uh, Kind of to kind of the last question now is like growth equity gives you this uh emily was saying like entrepreneurial side of investing right you're not tasked with one thing and run into the ground i thought it was really interesting like i spent the first couple of years learning and, and getting involved with deals and then i started angel investing right um on my own and i'm sure a lot of people here are already doing that or or looking into it and then i started running some syndicates then you starting meeting people that you know want to invest more and then you start building kind of a thesis or you know in my firm uh you know we're focused on aapi founders so you know mission driven but um 
and that, so that's kind of like a leap of faith and it's not non-traditional but a lot of people go start businesses and now with you know what you can do with your angel list and carta and all these other platforms and like source you can start these micro funds or even larger uh first-time funds too so i think there's like a ton of opportunity there that being in growth equity like you're talking to founders you own the relationship you own the book right you're owning the diligence you're the one presenting the memo or or the breakdown to to your team so you really earn like or you build these muscles that at the end of the day you can start going out and like pitching investors and pitching founders about why to take your capital so um yeah that's the glorious side of, of building a fund but you know obviously it's super different than than working at a fund but that's all kind of the learning journey um across both right and in all honesty i mean you have different experience from axa jmi and football um yeah. not to mention specific like was there was it like a favorite i guess like what were your like general takeaways as a whole yeah i see it's question a... rohit favorite fund you've ever worked <laughs> yeah <Ooh>. yeah <laughs> uh i have to get like sponsored posts from the firm so i should go back and ask <laughs> no i'm kidding um no all, all three firms honestly were, were great i think like i joined investing in 2015 uh when the market was hot and you know it's still hot it's a little different now but until 2021 right um, how I thought about my, my, like how I chose the firms I went to one is like the people and how you're going to grow. Right. Which is very, uh, you know, simple, but I think the other one was like, how do you think about like winning the best deals? Like growth equity can get to a point where it's like, it gets to just price, but you know, there's still some venture and there's some still the high growth companies. Right. So, uh, JMI was, you know, when I was there 25 years in B2B software, uh, very similar to, to um, you know, Spectrum, SageView, Summit, GA, others. So we kind of had that, you know, focus to win deals that like we, you know, had experience helping build those companies, right? And I thought about, you know, because I'm competing against everyone else as an analyst and uh, trying to win these deals. I was thinking about the new wave that was coming in that time was kind of these CVCs. And the CVC kind of have this bad rep in a way um, in terms of like, you know, is it balance sheet capital? Is there corporate governance? How you know slow or fast can you move on deals? But there's this new wave of kind of these corporate-backed VCs, which are independent but backed by corporates, that are really really interesting, right? Uh, Sapphire started like that. Um, uh, Norwest started like that. Um, Axel was like that, where Axel was a sole backer. And now there's there's more they're building out more, and I think it it was really like an edge because I thought, hey, if we have a team that's really like true investors then we have access that we can say they're a hundred billion dollar revenue company they're top five customer of salesforce and if we invest in your company they can be a customer partner distributor it's just almost like another tool in the toolkit that I, I could use right um and then when i thought about you know fifth wall i even went like more focused it was like okay only real estate tech right i want to win all the best real estate tech companies and instead of just having one corporate when i joined fifth wall had about 20 now they have about 100 corporates and so you're bringing this like kind of almost like a cvc but, but with like 100 corporates behind you that aren't attached right so it goes under fifth wall investment but you can call up all these corporates that have dollars invested so that's why i think fifth wall grew from 200 million to 3 billion in two and a half years is because it's a little bit of a edge right you have all these that can help you underwrite deals win deals and stuff like that so when i think about like progression of like my couple of different firms and it's a little bit like non-traditional to go to many different firms in an in investing career uh, i think that's changing a little bit but like really think about where you want to be at the end of the day and like 
how you're going to grow and how the market's shifting. Right. Um, so I think that's important to win the best deals and um, have opportunity at bat. So that's kind of how I thought about making those moves versus staying at one for a prolonged period of time, which is also a good path, but just different. All right. All right. Interesting. Um, Emily, if you don't mind me asking, actually, so we'll have to get a little bit more perspective. And there's a question actually kind of in the drop down box here around like, of course, like recruiting from MBA, but then also just kind of like your thoughts around um, MBA, one angle for sure, um, recruiting out of it, but then also how you think about kind of like what Eric had mentioned, like these days we think about, of course, when I did like an internship at like GE Aviation back in the day interacted with my bosses that were there for like, no joke, lifers. And when we say lifers, we mean like 15, 20 years. Nowadays, I feel like to keep people in their seats for like 24 months, 18 to 24 months is rather difficult. I remember connecting maybe one of the first conversations with office hours, like a month or two in, and they were like, yeah, like I've done it for a little bit. I'm good. I'm like, you've barely gone through training. Like, what are you talking about <laughs> done it for a little bit? And, but that's just kind of the world we live in, right? Everyone's like, not necessarily like a fleeting mindset, but they're thinking about different things, always kind of like, oh, glitzy, glamoury, like this shiny object, let's go check it out. What are your thoughts on like moving around a little bit? Because I do believe that like moving around sometimes helps escalate your career. Also, I mean, it's not like I don't believe in like loyalty to your firm if you have a good spot. Um, so that as like a two-folded part question, first business school and your perspective there, um, pertinent to growth equity. And then of course, kind of the ladder around like moving around. Yeah, two really good ones, Rohit. Thanks. Um, business school. So uh, the reason I went to business school was honestly more a personal underwrite than a professional underwrite. I'm a big believer, and maybe this is a hot take because I just spent all the money I've ever made paying for my tuition, but um, that you don't need to go to business school. If you're an investor and you want to be an investor, you don't need to go. And that's actually really different than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago in finance. Um, so free yourself from like that expectation uh, if you do have it. For me, going to Stanford Business School was a dream since I was like 19 years old and I was just going to like manifest it into the world. Um, and that was as much about just like, in, in my view, educational communities are unlike anything else in the world. And it's like a gift you give yourself um, to be able to go learn and be like humbled by being very far from the smartest person in the room. Every room for two full years is just like an awesome thing. Uh, so famously, when I was recruiting to join Mainsail, I was like, I'm super excited to be here. I will go to business school. And they're like, okay, calm down. Like that's three years away. Um, but that was like, a, it was a personal goal for me. And I used the time to do two things. Uh, one, build a community of people, specifically of women in investing. It's incredibly, it's been incredibly helpful and rewarding to me already. Every Tuesday night, we have board meeting at my apartment. And that's all the women in my class from Stanford come over two hours a week, every Tuesday. And everyone talks about like, you know, hey, I'm pitching a company, can I practice on you guys? Or I really want to hire engineers and I'd like to hire women, but I, I'm really struggling. Anyone have any recommendations? Or, hey, I'm having this issue with my board member. Like, can we role play it or talk through it? So that's already been like a transformational community in my life. But secondly, to sort of re-underwrite on, um, do I want to be an investor forever? And this is to your question, Rohit, on moving around. So I use business school to try everything else. I worked in the private equity team at uh, Bain Consulting, basically being like, what is Tiger getting when they pay a million dollars a week to Bain? Like what report are they getting? I want to go make that report for summer. Uh, so I did that. I worked at All Trails, a spectrum portfolio company on strategy uh, for a little while. I worked at a couple of venture funds. Um, I tried like everything else. And my takeaway was, oh, great. I really liked my job. Like I'm going straight back to what I was doing, but with a renewed sense of conviction. 
Um, my tip for recruiting out of the MBA to Julie as to your question um, is kind of what I started with, which is the internet is a beautiful and powerful thing. There's no reason to ever wait for someone to call you. So what I did was like, when I was at Maintel, I kept a list of ones that got away. So companies I loved that we pitched and didn't win or companies that I loved that we wouldn't have pitched because they were outside our mandate, like start there and have that be like your, your personal interest and look at those funds. But then the best way in the world to get a job and build a relationship with an investor is read term sheet every day. Think about what deal you'd love to be on the deal team for. Find the person who led that deal and be like, hey, man, or woman, statistically, I would love if more of them were women. Um, congrats on this deal. This looks super interesting. I imagine your thesis was blank. Three pros, three cons. That is like a million times more thoughtful than sending your resume or LinkedIn request or whatever. So I spent a lot of time doing that uh, when I recruited to leave business school. And it was awesome because the quality of conversation I was having was not, hey, are you hiring for vice presidents or principals? It was, hey, oh, interesting. I kind of like missed that concern area on your recent fintech investment. And they had fun teaching me. I had fun learning. We talked about companies, which is our job. Like the whole thing was just a lot better. So that's tip number one on, on recruiting. And then on jumping around, it's interesting. So Spectrum, we have a photo album on our lunch table. We eat lunch together every day, which is adorable. And the photo album is pictures from 15 or 20 years ago at Spectrum. And what's really interesting about it is almost all the people in the pictures are still there. So it's like Vic Parker, a, a partner I work for, the day he graduated from business school, like with his then girlfriend, who's now his wife with many children. And I, I think it's important, like we live in a world where it's it feels fun to switch around and like announce things on LinkedIn, but like think about the people you admire and how they've built their career um, by looking at folks at Spectrum. Two for me are um, Ben Spiro and Vic Parker. They've been at Spectrum for 15 and 20 years, basically. The firm's 25 years old. Like that's how they've built the, the um, moat of their career. And so I think that's just been a helpful reminder that like really impressive investors oftentimes take a long-term view, not just about companies, but also about funds. Um, so that's a, a thing I think a good, good deal about when the popular view of like to get promoted, you need to switch firms comes into, comes into your mind. I think it's important to like take a step back and think about what's valued at the fund I'm looking at. Never go to a fund expecting to get promoted if everyone at the top is a grow from within, if that makes sense. Um, so like look at what's valued on your team and, and the team you're, you're looking at and think about like, do I want that? Do I want that path to be, to be my path? That was a long podcast episode, but hopefully I covered most of your, most of your question topics, Rohit. No, I love it. I love it. Honestly, uh, definitely great insight um, overall. And then of course, just getting the perspective of like basically providing value, right? Rather than kind of asking, like, oh, I'll send over my resume. Like, can we hop on the phone? But like, really, I'm just asking if you're hiring, like, give us an understanding of like what you're really looking to do, right? Um, when I was interviewing at Battery the first time, honestly, Hercules Capital, one of my last internships helped me out with that. And they were like, if it's sourcing, eat what you um, kill type of model. We literally printed out a list of companies from Cap IQ. I walked into the interview being like, I would call on these companies day one, pre-source group days, literally. Yeah. Um, and it somehow ended up just being like, okay, like this person's looking to like hustle, hunger, that type of situation. And you really walk in being like, okay, I can do the job before I get the job type of mentality. Yeah. Um, That's totally it. I love it. Try to, try to where we can. Um, and then of course, Kevin, would love to get your perspective operating experience, right? And then of course, like at a 
I look at Summit as like, I feel like part of the reason Source Group was there because of growth equity firms. Part of the reason growth equity is there because of Summit partners, right? Kind of like literally indoctrinated the entire model that is call on companies, right? These distributed projects, uh, sourcing. So we'd love to get your perspective on Summit as a whole. And then of course, um, going to the operating side. Yeah, yeah. Summit was, first of all, I have nothing bad to say about Summit, despite the fact that I'm not there anymore. It's an amazing firm. Um, and it's interesting. There's this like, yeah, there's this battle out there around who did it first, TA or Summit. Um, technically TA, because the Summit founders were there when they sort of ran into the sourcing strategy and said, let's go start a firm just like totally built around this. Um, there's so much institutional knowledge at Summit. And actually to Emily's point, one of the things I really loved about Summit was that all the partners there started as associates. Um, so they had a lot of longevity at the firm. They all did the sourcing role. And so for me, like I said, it was a really scary thing to get into. And I kind of thought like, what better way to like learn how to do this than to, than to do it at Summit. Um, and actually, main, you know, there's a lot of spinoff funds as well. Main sales founded by, I think two of your partners are um, Summit alums and, um, you know, Anyways, the, the Summit Network is also, a, you know, alumni network is also a really powerful thing. Um, tons of successful investors out there that come from, from Summit. So it was a great place for me to cut my teeth, um, learn from really interesting investors. And one of, the, one of the things I really learned being there too was that there's no one way to do this job. Um, everybody has their own kind of personality that they bring to the table and they are vastly different. And a good sourcer doesn't follow a specific sort of way of doing things. They sort of define their own way of doing things. And you, you figure that out by sort of being exposed to lots of different great investors and like picking up things that resonate with you. And so um, Summit, again, was an amazing place to do all that. They, um, the tagline at Summit is fortune favors the bold. Um, so literally it used to be when, you know, they founded the strategy 35 years ago, like open the yellow book and just call. Um, and yellow pages or whatever, and uh, and just call companies, right? Like we didn't have LinkedIn, we didn't have Source Scrub, like no, you know, very little means to to sort of qualify these companies from the outside, and so you just had to pick up the phone and call. And so that's why the tagline is sort of Fortune favors the bold. Just get out there. It's on the screensavers at Summit. It's in the kitchen at Summit. Um, and I think that even in this very like you know, information is very democratized environment. Um, that still is true. Like it's actually one of the best ways to get in touch with the CEOs to pick up a phone and call them because their inboxes are completely flooded with emails from associates that say virtually the same thing in, in, in the emails. And so um, again, like there's this mentality there of fortune favors the bold. There's lots, there's a lot of like peer mentorship, a lot of really amazing investors. And I really enjoyed my time there. Um, and I think the difference between kind of being at Seiju now versus a summit is at summit you're, and I know you didn't really ask this, Ruip, um, but I'll just, I'll just mention it because uh, I don't want to sound like I don't love my current firm. Um, but I, I think at a place like summit, the engine is so good and you're just, you sort of participate in that engine for, you know, when you look up at summit, it's, I'm going to do, you know, sourcing and deal execution for 15, 20 years before I even think about impacting the overall strategy of Summit as a firm. And so coming to Seiju for me was an opportunity to take all this like really great investing acumen that I built up at Summit and, and seeing how Summit does things and saying, you know, can I, can I actually like impact a firm at an earlier stage in my career and, and the direction of the firm? Because 
I did always have a little bit of that operational itch. Um, and so I wanted to just be able to impact strategy internally as well. Um, and I actually did get to do a little bit of that of that at Summit when it came to diversity, um, you know, helping to form a diversity committee, helping to build out an internship strategy so that we could actually recruit more, you know, diverse candidates um, before they get, you know, go through the banking funnel and, and become, you know, not as diverse of a candidate pool. Um, so that gets to your other question too about like operating. I think for me, like, always loved the companies that I worked with at Harris Williams and Summit. I just thought growth stage software companies are like the most exciting things. Um, and I, I just really wondered if I wanted to be on the other side of the table and, you know, it felt like operating might be more iterative. I, I could try different strategies and if they don't work, I can pivot. Whereas in investing, you're kind of making one bet a year, you're waiting five to 10 years to see if that's a good bet. There's like a lot riding on those decisions. And so I thought that, you know, operating might be more my speed um, and so I was, um, I was sort of working on an indirect sales strategy and corporate development um, at Veriship, now Sifted, um, and, and trying that out and seeing if like that thesis held true. And I think, um, and by the way, I did apply to my MBA too, and I almost went to Kellogg, but I was like, I don't, I don't know that like, I think I need to go really do it and not just have, you know, really have the full responsibility of being an operator and then potentially Think about business school if that's still in the path um, for me. And so I made that decision. Um, but, you know, I think what I realized was in the operating world, it's, it is iterative, but to try any one thing, you actually have to get like product and sales and marketing and customer success all aligned on whatever thing it is that you want to try. And that's a lot of work. And it's a lot of different personalities, a lot of people that are motivated by different things. And you're like, and I don't even know if this is going to work. I was just going to try it out. And so, um, you know, I think it, it made me realize, actually, my job is really iterative in the investing world where I can kind of, it, I just need me and my, you know, deal team to basically say like, I want to go tug on this thread. I want to go tug on this thread. I want to go tug on this one. Um, and so, and I also miss just kind of um, being able to constantly learn about new industries. Um, I felt a little pigeonholed in, in parcel audit, which is, I think is exciting, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe boring for other people and maybe boring if you spend too much time in it. So, um, so anyways, I missed that sort of macro level view and decided to recruit, recruit back, but Rowan, I mean, like, it, it, like to your point, you're a great example of like, you went to go try it and it worked out great. Um, and so I do think when you come out of an associate role, you're really well positioned to sort of try out the operating thing if you want to and still pivot back or stay if it works out. There's a lot of optionality. Um, and I think sort of pre-VP role is when you should try lots and lots of different things and not worry too much about like, you know, I'm jumping around, you're kind of building your network. And then I do think like, I do think once you, you know, at some point you gotta, gotta decide like, where am I gonna build my track record and my career and my equity long-term? And so that's where you see a lot of, the most successful firms have partners that have been around for 15 to 20 years. So you can kind of do both um, if you time it right. Also getting, you know, wrapping up my podcast episode there. <laughs> Again, I thought you brought up a really good point on uh, about like firms at different stage, right? Summit being very established if you, when you joined it was earlier on, but you know, obviously still a large established firm. Uh, I think like that was something I thought about too, right? When I was at JMI, we were, I think it was like fund eight, if I'm not mistaken, which is a billion dollar fund, right? And then when I joined AXA, we had not even closed fund one. 
right? And then when I was at Fifth Wall, we had just closed or finished deploying fund one, we're raising fund two. And all of those stages are super different. So I think that's really important because people that were at each of those firms had really different like uh, aspirations, right? Like when I was at AXA, I was really helping like choose a CRM and like f- yeah. like market map and like like get swag and like you know I was talking like real hit about that stuff, you know. And then at at JMI, like we it was very established, it was very different, but you know it was a lot more crowded. Like it was hard to find new companies because we basically had marked every company as B two B software like everyone else, right? And then fifth was a little bit different. So I think that's something to think about too, because like everyone's a little bit different in, in terms of like strengths and weaknesses and, and where you want to spend time. So, um, you know, if you want to kind of like build some ground up, you know, go to something earlier. Um, and, and if you want to like, just, you know, join a team and learn and kind of follow the, follow the lines where they are already, then kind of go to somewhere more established. Um, and there's obviously pros and cons for comp and carry and co-invest and all those things that you can like figure out. But I wouldn't say that's like a key concern when you're, you know, looking at an associate program, it's like, get get good reps get good experience get a build a great deal list uh track record and then from there you know worry about the economics later yeah i think that's so true i also want to point out really cool thing that uh, mainsail does if you don't go to business school between being a senior associate and being a vice president everyone goes and works at a company a recent portfolio company often it's one that you've just kind of like written the investment thesis on Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's really cool i was having dinner last night with um a woman I really admire who just became a VP and finished her six month externship. And it's cool, Caitlin, that like you understood that and like when to do it yourself, but now seeing firms kind of codify, like this is important. It will make you better. Like it will make you a more empathetic investor and partner to your companies. Um, I think it's just really cool to see. So it's neat that as Mainsail continues to grow, they've made that a part of like the, the playbook of what it means to grow up at the firm. Um, so really cool that, that that's kind of the system there now. Yeah, that's awesome. The one piece of advice I'd give if you don't have an awesome system like that in place, um, you know, to go try out the operating thing and you do want to try it, like have some conversations with like the team members at your current firm um, about like what your goals are. Um, And particularly like, so for me, it was, do I want to do this operating thing or not? And I was really lucky. I didn't have the, the foresight to have this conversation, but my boss had it with me proactively about like, if this doesn't work, you know, like, it's okay, this is for you to figure out what you want, and I'll help you pivot um, if it doesn't work in six months even. And so, you know, that was, that was huge, first of all, and, and I owe, you know, my, my, uh, the partner I worked for there at Summit, like, a lot for providing me that opportunity. Um, but, you know, I kind of look back, and I'm like, I got so lucky that he sort of set that up for me, um, and I, I should have probably proactively done that if, if he hadn't, and I would have known, wouldn't have known to. Mm-hmm. So, definitely, uh, definitely biased here, but I'd go as far to say as uh, growth equity is arguably like one of the best opportunities, like whether it be fresh out of school or fresh out of banking. Um, and a couple of different reasons, right? I mean, for of course, all of our uh, attendees as well. Excel, banking, I think that's like phenomenal. I think it's value add. I think definitely like learning how to work is great within like banking as a whole. Um, I got that experience, of course, kind of on the growth equity side, fresh out, working with um, a couple of people um, that really just kind of just expect you to know stuff after some time. But the reality is, is that like, how often do you get to connect with CEOs and senior folks at businesses that literally, I remember at Battery, I was like, I have the battery.com domain. domain. I was like, grow at that battery.com. 
And just because of that itself, I was connecting with CEOs that had like 25 years experience within this industry. They were connecting with me and I was like maybe like 23 years old. I was like, why are you even talking to me? Like, don't you have better things to do? Like, I don't know anything about anything being an analyst. So just the fact that like they were open and being able to speak with you because you had the battery.com domain, being able to structure your own schedule, your travel coordinates thereafter. I'm not saying anyone can learn Excel. But the reality is like how much of life comes back to like sales to a certain degree. And the one main example I would put here is like technically like even on the banking side, how often does it happen that an MD will like take a look at a business or take a look at a book and be like, let me call my friend over at Toma. Let me call my friend over at Spectrum or JMI or Level or Brighton Park Capital or Apex, because I think this is like a good fit for their portfolio company. Or I think this is something that they would take a look at more and more seniority ends up being like my friend is a really good saying where it's like the more and more senior you get the more and more work is just like being on the phone right like less and less like actually like on a computer i'm sure you might take notes but the reality is like you're connecting with other individuals and frankly probably more juniors are doing a little bit more of the grunt work but i feel like growth equity is like a great balance between like getting a lot of responsibility learning about a bunch of different industries of course the excel work that comes with you probably have that from banking but also really, really just like getting an understanding of different industries as a whole. If you want to go operating and your job is to connect with interesting companies and you find an interesting company. Totally. It was interesting how many of my friends in business school came from investing, pivoted to operating and said, what's so neat about this decision is I've spent a bunch of years preparing to do like the ultimate underwrite, which is you're not investing someone else's capital. You're investing like a couple of really high impact years of your career and so it's, it's a super transferable skill set. And I have a friend actually who like famously wrote basically an investment memo of like each of the three companies she thought about working for. And it was great. And it's exactly the same mindset that, that we use uh, in, in the growth world for sure. Yeah, 100%. Um, I guess we have like a few, few, few minutes left here, but I'd be curious, like, honestly, and we can go kind of down the line here, Emily, Caitlin, and Eric, um, what differentiates your firm? from others, right? Like why should potentially people look to apply, look to interview, look to engage and kind of like, what is that secret sauce or like X factor that really attracted you to your current role? Love that. Um, so yeah, I, I recently did my spectrum underwrite. So it's very fresh for me. Um, there's like, I would say three legs of the stool, um, companies, people approach companies, um, it's super important that when you recruit at a firm, you look at the portfolio and your little nerd brain is just like watering at the mouth to like talk to those companies, help build those companies. That's how I feel about the, the Spectrum portfolio. Like not only was Spectrum the first uh, institutional investor in SurveyMonkey when it was eight people, uh, Spectrum also invested in AllTrails when it was like less than 20 people and my favorite product, um, but relatively unknown as like a market leading business and that the company it's become today. Um, the entire portfolio page for me at Spectrum is wow, 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 wow. 10 rolls, rows of that. Um, and it's really interesting to see across how many domains that continues to be true. So I don't spend as much time in healthcare, but I'm a GoodRx user. Um, I don't necessarily use productivity tools all day, every day, but dang, Lucid is a great business. Um, and so like the, the way that I think about our companies first and foremost is respect and admiration. So that's thing one. Uh, thing to people, um, it matters a lot to me to work with people who have big brains and low egos, and that describes everyone at Spectrum in a way that I think is really differentiated and really special. Um, and three is approach. I mentioned small things like we have lunch together every day. That's actually pretty uncommon that people would voluntarily want to eat a sandwich next to every single person that they work with for an hour uh, every day. 
it's really special. Um, there's also a thing about about Spectrum that's distinct from mainsail and I think pretty interesting and uh, hard to figure out when you're recruiting and hiring, which is our staffing model and associate um, setup, as opposed to a pod system, which is really traditional at uh, like mainsail, JMI, Summit, I don't know, uh, Sageview, Caitlin, where like you work with a partner, a couple mid-levels and a couple associates, and that's your pillar. Uh, at Spectrum, the way it works is like an associate gets off the phone with a company they're obsessed with. They stand up and they decide who they work on that opportunity with. And they and that mid-level decide what partner they work on that opportunity with, which is interesting for a ton of reasons. One, cross-pollination of like who you work with and learn from at the firm. Um, two, it's a really great forcing function as a mid-level and partner to develop expertise and like create yourself as an asset to that associate and driving the deal forward. Um, and three, culturally, it's pretty special that we have a bullpen that like uh, is, is self-directed and pretty academic in how they, how they source. Um, and that staffing model, I think, really like empowers that. It's something I like wouldn't have understood to ask about or appreciated when I first joined a, a firm, but I think it's pretty, pretty neat, uh, pretty special and has made us a, a team that's really fun to work on. Uh, so that would be my commercial about Spectrum, but feel free to email me, ecawkins at spectrumequity.com if you have uh, other questions or if you want to interview with us. Um. Okay, I can go next. Um, so Sageview, I'll give you the quick feel on sort of our founding story because it's super relevant. Um, we were founded by Scott Stewart and Ned Gilhooley, actually really in the really small world, I believe Ned's daughter works at Spectrum. So uh, also a great firm uh, in our opinion. Um, but uh, Scott and Ned were actually Stanford B uh, GSB roommates and then they were like employees 12 and 13 at KKR, um, the large firm in New York. And they sort of grew that firm over several decades before starting Sageview in 2006. And so, um, so our strategy is really to bring the, you know, when they first started the fund to bring their network, their expertise to, which is, you know, really rooted in traditional big business um, to these up and coming growth, you know, growth stage companies in the tech uh, and tech enabled services space. And so um, really sort of being that bridge between traditional business and up and coming technology companies, which I just love that pitch. I hadn't, I mean, I worked at Summit where the pitch is just like, we're Summit. Um, and there's a lot that, you know, a lot of good stuff that comes with that. And I felt like that was really differentiated and unique. Um, I'd say we, and the other thing I liked is we do every, anything tech or tech enabled. So we're not totally wed to B2B SaaS. And I love that because I think even in the SaaS, you know, the subscription business model, um, a lot of pricing models are moving to more usage-based. And so you really have to challenge yourself to think about like, what, is the, what are the right benchmarks and what are the right unit economics to decide if this is like a really great company or not? And so I think um, you sort of challenge yourself to think a little bit outside of the typical like LTV to CAC retention, net retention, gross dollar, and, and say like, you know, let's really think creatively about um, why we think this is a good business. And so I like looking at all different business models. Who doesn't love a good you know, software model, I love that too. So we do something like probably 80% of our portfolio are SaaS companies and the other 20% is, is everything else. Um, I'd say the common thread through all the companies that we work with is that we feel like we have an angle. And when I say an angle, I mean um, an angle in which like Sageview can uniquely help that business grow. So we're always minority investors, um, you know, and so we really try to align ourselves with the management teams around ways that we can help because we're not taking control of these businesses and sort of, you know, taking control of the operations and optimizing. We're aligning ourselves and trying to add value in, in unique ways. 
And so um, that can that can look really different for different companies. For one of my portfolio companies, it's we're making top to top customer introductions um, from Scott's network in the global 2000. Um, for another company, Carewell, which is an online retailer of home health products, um, obviously customer introductions aren't super valuable. So we're helping them recruit a medical advisory board based on, um, you know, Scott leads the uh, is chair of the board at Memorial Sloan Plumbing, and you know Ned led the healthcare team at KKR. Um, and so, you know, for me, um, like I, I just really liked solving for that. Um, versus solving for like a checklist of things that just fit an, a, a, you know, a mandate. I mean, obviously whatever we do has to fit a mandate, but I like solving for saying like, how can we uniquely be the best per, uh, partner to this, you know, company and management team? Um, I echo everything Emily said about people and companies. I think you really do have to, you know, find the right fit culturally for you and, um, and also be really excited about the types of companies you're backing. Last thing I'd say about SageU is it's just an entrepreneurial place. You know, we're trying to, um, you know, make sure that this company, that, you know, this firm lasts, you know, well beyond Ned and Scott, right? They want this firm to last for the, for the you know, long run. And so they're, um, they're always looking for ideas that the junior team has in terms of, um, you know, whether it be sourcing, adding value to portfolio companies. And there's a lot of things that I've been able to just kind of go out and do or pitch that I would, that I feel like at Summit, it was, you know, too institutionalized of a place to even try. Um, so I will pause there and hand it over. But yeah, yeah also, if you're interested, email me, Caitlin at Seju, uh, capital.com. <laughs> um, I'm happy to talk offline about the previous firms. I think I touched upon my journey going through the, the three previous firms, um, a little bit on, on Pollock Ventures. Um, you know, it's a little different. You know, there's been a rise of a lot of emerging funds focused on specific strategies or missions or uh, industries. And I think um, that's really good for the venture ecosystem, right? It brings a lot more diversity of thought um, into businesses. It, it funds businesses that might not have been funded earlier in the cycle, uh, which will obviously trickle up to more growth equity and private equity and hopefully public, public markets in the future as well. Um, but, you know, I think why I'm personally super excited about uh, what we're building here is, you know, there's a lot of craze about NFTs and Web3 and crypto and how to mechanize, you know, community and social change. And I think about it like that's all great. And I think it's going to persist. But, you know, investing in venture capital is also equally great way to do that. Right. People are investing long term in businesses. You're co-investing with people. You want to help these businesses. So it's like a really a shared common goal. It's like alumni network or like, you know, being associated with a sports team or something like that. So that's how I think about building this fund a little bit different. Um, and, you know, it's a personal thing for me. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people um, feel this for, for people of uh, color or, or marginalized or just underrepresented. But I think like when I dug into it, a couple of quick stats, like 20% of VC personnel are, are Asian, East and South Asian, but control less than 1% of the uh, AUM from a GP side. Right. Uh, so there isn't a underrepresentation, which is also an important topic, but it's about how to like really break barriers and break the ceiling. Right. Um, but then there's a really interesting undercurrent. Twenty six percent of unicorns have at least one agent co-founder now. Right. And so when I think about that, it's like, OK, there's ways for us to be unique, uh, bridge the communities, but also like from a financial side. You know, we have a really great shot at getting access into these. We're not competing against lead VCs right now for, for rounds. So we're co-investing, we're bringing our, our capital and 
our network. Um, and I think the last thing I'm thinking about uh, a lot recently is, you know, how to think about building um, an investment firm that has a really outward facing approach. Like Fifth Wall is really, really focused on social media. They brought on like the CMO of BuzzFeed that, that leads uh, marketing for them. Um, so for us, it's similar, like consumer brands. So we want to do a lot with partnering with uh, a lot of the social media channels out there existing, right? Working with corporates and influencers and, and really bring that kind of consumer touch to it. And then on community side, um, I know a lot of funds do this too, but we're doing it as well, which is like connecting LPs with one another. So we're similar to Lead Edge in a way where a lot of our LPs are individuals, founders, general partners, people in tech and, and law and entertainment. And we have an internal kind of lunch club like technology that matches people up for bi-weekly calls. So hopefully our LPs can meet, build relationships on a personal level and see if, you know, maybe there's a deal, maybe there's something else on, on top of that, but that's something we're bringing on approach. So I think there's a, I always say like creator economy of, of investing um, has grown a ton, you know, really from AngelList starting at, you know, syndicate leads are deploying $50 million as a single person, which is crazy to me, right? Um, and then you have all the traditional funds. So we're trying to kind of be in the middle a little bit on both sides. Um, so I think there's going to be a rise of that. So follow along. We're not, we're not necessarily hiring full-time for probably you guys, but you know, you guys can look at investing or we do like partner with a lot of VCs and part-time gigs here and there in the summer and stuff like that. So we're very, uh, very interested in meeting more people as well. Eric, I just want to take a second to say it's so cool that you're building this fund. And the second I make it big in investing, I will beg you to become an LP of Pablo. <laughs> I just we'll think this is, it's you. so important and I love it. And it's really energizing to hear you talk about it. So congrats yeah. on going for it. It's really cool. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Great. we'll share more. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I knew honestly uh, the conversation was going to go so great that like we would get cut off, um, which inevitably happened. Um, but appreciate seriously everyone coming out for this. Um, Emily is hiring. Caitlin is hiring. I put the LinkedIn's directly in the channel. But more than anything, right? Like last like parting note, I have like three four pages of notes just from like this conversation. So I leave it to of course like everyone within. I'm sure Eric wants to speak about experience too. Um, but what I'm getting at is that like, there has to be something tangible in this note, in the email and the LinkedIn connection, there's so much good stuff that we spoke about. So if honestly, if there's any like standardized note, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. You can thank people for, of course, like, um, you know, being part of the panel, but something specific, right. Kind of like what Emily and of course, Caitlin and Eric spoke to before provide value before you ask for something. I think that's like a really, really big part and like a really big takeaway um, that I think we can all kind of like resonate with. So appreciate everyone coming. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having us, Rohit. Yeah, Thank you. I'm sure we'll chat shortly. Take Bye care. everyone.